And we are live. Welcome to another episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say I'm here with Leisha Skye. She is the co-founder and global ambassador of the Trauma Research Foundation. She's a somatic educator, a writer, an artist, a singer-songwriter, and a body worker. Leisha, it is with great pleasure that I welcome you to our first show back in 2024. Wow. Thank you. What an honor to be your first guest this year. Ah, I'm so delighted to meet you and be with your audience. Brilliant. Yes, thank you. All right. So for people who are not familiar uh, with you, uh, it'd be wonderful if you can give us a little bit of your, your, your backstory and how you got interested in this topic of, of trauma. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think many people who've experienced trauma in their lives don't have that word or didn't used to have that word. So I, I had a, a very traumatic childhood. Um, I was born to parents who also had severe PTSD. My dad was a Tuskegee Airman. He was a black American born in 1929 when the racism was horrific in this country. He managed to escape his impoverished beginnings, violent pop impoverished beginnings, and during the service. And he met my mother in Japan. So she was his Japanese war bride. She survived the firebombing of Tokyo in World War II. Mm. Both my parents were separated from their parents very early in life. And so they didn't have secure attachment. And uh, Emotional attachment and love and the experience of safety and relationship is a very important part of what gets disrupted with trauma um, as children and later as adults. And so my parents didn't have a solid reference. They were very loving people, but they did not have a solid reference of what it takes to raise children without trauma. Mm. Um, and I, I suspect there are many, many people like that. I think that culturally, this is, this is a level of our evolution where we, we come to a place where we can raise our children differently. But the, the fact of, of early childhood trauma is that it impacts how we see the world, how we expect the world to see us and treat us. And it affects or impairs how much we're able to see opportunities, how we're able to move towards things that would be good for us, how to trust and know when we can trust and know when we shouldn't trust. So, so um, you know, I, I didn't have language for that when I first started finding out about trauma, but I, um, I became a body worker very early on. Um, I, I'll say that people are not familiar with that term. Body worker, you know, some people say massage therapist, some people have a specific modality that they work with. Um, I was touching people, holding people, manipulating their tight muscles to try and help them feel better. Um, it was part of my culture as a Japanese person that there was a lot of 
massage and touch in my family. I learned to walk on people's feet when I was a little kid. Um, and it, it was just, I knew it wasn't American culture. It was definitely Japanese culture, mm-hmm. family culture. And that was part of safety and feeling good. And I knew that I knew how to do it. And then I discovered that people here could make a living that way. And so I went into body work. But um, I've always been a very nonlinear, eclectic kind of person. So I've collected many skills that um, I've been able to incorporate into what I do. So meditation, yoga, um, singing and vocalizing, eventually all those things found their way into my bodywork practice and became part of what I consider bodywork. So it's not just about physical touch. It's about all the ways that we make contact with each other as humans. Mm. Um, Yeah. So I touch you with my voice. You touch me with your voice. Eye contact is contact. There's a gaze. There's a way to behold. And beholding is with your eyes. Beholding is with your whole being. Not just with your arms and hands. Right. Yes. And so when you you were first drawn into body work, when did you, and maybe you didn't have trauma as a term then, but when did you... Um, Well, you know, you might have aches and pains in your body and you might think that oh, this just means I'm getting old or I didn't stretch enough before I worked out. But we have habits of how we hold ourselves in our bodies. There are patterns that have to do with our permissions to express ourselves or not. Right. And so um, I'm very aware of how important our voices are as an aspect of our embodied experience what we know of ourselves through our bodies. Our voices vibrate our bodies and vibrate the environment around us. Our our skeletal system especially resonates with the reverberations of our voice. So so our scalp, our our skull, our sternum, our shoulders, our everything, if you hum into your hands, you can Feel the vibration of your voice in your hands. It travels through liquids better than air and through solids better than liquids. So we've experienced the vibrations of our bodies. And I'm I'm saying this because so many people in so many different cultures have had the experience of being forced to not cry as children or told to sit still and not move and not be heard. and and if you've ever tried to suppress a cough or a laugh or a sneeze or a, a gasp of surprise or anything like that, you know that it takes a physical effort to do that, to yeah. push it down, to stop it and to hold it. And that can become a habit. Yeah. And culturally, it is a habit. And, and that creates 
a constant tension that's always on, that's always working, that has effects on different parts of the body. It can be sort of numbing. It can be an aching pain that's always there that you just forget about and keep going and keep going and keep going. So many of the people that would come to me thinking they needed relief in their muscular tissue and their shoulders or their legs or whatever it was, they would have these patterns of holding and massage that I was doing wasn't enough. And sometimes breathing and helping people to sigh would be helpful. (sighs) Something that you can actually see your breath letting go. You squeeze a little bit and then you let go a little bit. And so I, I could do that. And, and sometimes people who are physically very rigid could let go with their breath a little bit sometimes. Yeah. But, but if you put voice on it, people can feel so self-conscious about their voices. And since I'm a singer and I'm not so self-conscious about my voice, I would intuit what I sensed the sound was that they needed to make. Wow. And I would offer to make the sound, I would invite them to make a sound, I would model the sound that I thought they might find helpful and invite them to make the sound with me inside the sound that I was making. And, and that's a way of covering for a person, holding them with my voice so they don't have to feel the shame or self-consciousness that might get activated was making a weird sound like, uh, or, uh, or whatever it was. And, yeah. and, you know, so making sound involves your breath. It involves vibration in your body. It involves body awareness. Making sound, attra- at, or things orient to sound. So, you know, if you hear a loud boom, your body's going to turn and see what it is. Yep. And, and if you're making a weird sound, there's a way, especially if you've been taught to not make sounds, that you can feel, there's like a cringe factor, like, oh, pretend mm. we don't want anybody to see me doing this. Yeah. But holding those, the space for a person to make a sound like that can release something from deep inside themselves. And there, there's usually an emotion attached to it that they've also been hiding. Yeah. And, um, so that was one thing. Uh, I, you know, I'd be working on somebody's hip. How long has this been hurting? Oh, for at least 10 years, blah, 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 blah. And it turns out that it started hurting on the day that their dad died. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, just that stop of, ah, really? And then tears and then a release of their hip that's been hurting for so long. Yeah. Um, and then trauma, it's interesting because, you know, I, I was working with people who were having flashbacks on the table, memories that they didn't know they had until I held them or touched them or worked with their bodies or helped them to become aware of what their bodies were carrying. Deep, deep, horrible memories being released that they'd never told anyone. Yeah. And suddenly, me as a massage therapist who was told, don't talk to people. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think body workers need a lot more training in trauma. Yeah. Um, 
and trauma awareness. And, you know, I, I think I'm, there are surely some people who are actively doing that. But from what I hear of massage school, there's not enough going on there yet. You know, I, and, and by the same token, people who are trained in therapy, for the most part, don't understand very much about the body. Yeah. And, and they don't have a vocabulary of safe touch. So they don't touch at all. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's all of this awareness that I had about people having flashbacks. I still didn't have that word trauma. And then in 2012, I met Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. And um, it was a casual by chance meeting and we had a cup of coffee and he said, what do you do? And I told him and he told me what he did. And suddenly I just realized that, oh, there's, there's a, we have a lot in common. Yeah. We have a lot of understanding in common. And through his work, I really learned to understand more intellectually instead of intuitively about trauma and about about how deeply our bodies are the map for how we interact with the world, how our feelings that we carry inside us say what we have permission to even notice or not notice inside yeah. ourselves and outside in the world. There are some things that we say, oh, that's not for me. That's not okay. I have to hide this, lock it down. And nobody ever gets to see this about me or they would all hate me. That's what yeah. trauma is. Like. Yeah. That's real. Yeah. Like. That's right. And, yeah. Go on, go on. No, I was going to say it's like our body is, a, is, a, is a, almost like a filter on what we can think. And that sounds strange, doesn't it? We think of ourselves as having this freedom of, of mind to explore and you know, any, any idea that we might have for ourselves without necessarily realizing that, yeah. We may be prevented by old patterns held in the body, even at the level of our thinking process. Well, I, more what I think is that that um, our body is all the source information we have to make sense of the world, and our minds sit on top of our body, sort of interpreting all of that information that's coming in, and. Um, If, if our mind, our body is feeling terrible all the time, our mind is going to tell us you're in danger. You're not liked. You're not wanted. It's not okay to be here. Be suspicious. You can't fully trust everything around you. The, and, and you might be so used to thinking those things, those, those sort of base reality things that you don't even know that those are your thoughts about yeah. yourself or about the world around you. Um, and, and so paying attention to your body differently so that you can know more clearly where you are and what your body is experiencing. Know with specificity what is in pain and what is not in pain. That helps to clear our minds clear our understanding of, is there really a threat here that I need to tend to? Or can I look around and see something that's actually beautiful around me? What no. it, we'll only do what, it's, what our nervous system says it's safe to do. 
Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it just reminds me of, of, of when I was doing, doing yoga, but having had done some trauma release work and getting much more in touch with my body and, and doing, doing the warrior poses and allowing my chest to come high and then yes. the release of tears. And it was uh, oh, I can I can like feel pride about myself. And yeah. it was like I can have thoughts of pride about me in a way that I hadn't had before doing that. So so that was my first visceral experience of connecting how our body and where we allowed ourselves to move our body in space affects how I think about myself. And yeah. Right. It was, uh, right. Yeah, and, and I've had many, many, many moments since then, but it's uh, it, that, that just came to mind as you were sharing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That, and that's the thing is slowing down, having a different context to be in mm. is incredibly important. Um, if, if your mind is telling you there's no place safe in the world because your body hasn't found a way to feel at ease, then finding ways to change your body, finding ways to know your body. That's the, that's the beginning. And yoga is a wonderful way to have a relationship with your body because it's slow. You can actually observe yourself while you're doing it. Your focus isn't outward. Your focus is right here in inside as you're doing the poses, as you're moving through the asanas. Yeah. Yeah, with the right teacher, right? Because uh, there's yeah. certain yoga cards, it's all about are you doing the form correctly and it's bang, 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 post. But yeah, I, I, I got to know the, the kind of teachers who would allow me to kind of work with in, internally as I did my yoga, yeah. Right, and, and I, I really appreciate the slower, the better for me. Um, being able to understand the asymmetry of my body as I do a pose. Oh, one side is tighter in this way than the other way. I seem to have better balance on this foot than the other foot. All of those things, how am I breathing? I, I love being aware of my breath as I do a yoga pose and really, really listening to the sensations of my spine. So even, even if I'm not doing yoga, even if I'm not practicing with people, I, those are the kinds of things that I tend to focus on. Or where's your balance? What does your breath feel like? Can you feel your breath from the inside out? Or is it only an external concept? What does it feel like when you take a breath in? What's expanding inside you that you can notice the sensations of? Just going really, really, really slow. And then mm. what, what feelings or emotions or thoughts come up with the sensations that you notice in your body? Now do you hold the two of them? And as you notice shifts and changes in your body, you notice shifts and changes in your emotions or your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm curious then, taking you back to your early days of practicing as a body worker, bringing in, as you say, these other elements. How would you work on your own trauma? How were you exploring your own yeah, patterns and so yeah. on? As you, That's yeah. so interesting. I did a lot of peer counseling. I, I actually joined a group that was trained to do peer counseling, and I would go to retreats where I could learn more of the peer counseling techniques. 
and then um then I would peer counsel I, I was a peace activist and peer counseling was a big thing back in the 70s and 80s right um and then I, eventually I, I did find a therapist and work very extensively for years and a lot of that was talk, but then I, I had my own practices outside of talking. Uh, I think that there's no one right way to heal. Yeah. Um, and the way I work with people now, uh, when I do consultations or I'm teaching in a workshop, your thoughts are important to understand. But your thoughts can lead you back into your body, and your body might have a clearer, more specific memory for you than your thoughts can hold. And and lots of times when people talk, they tend to glide through the hard parts. It's so hard to to get that out at all without feeling like you're going to fall apart. That people tend to speak really quickly when it hurts most. Yeah. So when they're doing that, that's when I invite people to slow down. Wait, 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 you're going a little fast for me. Can we just pause for a moment? And how does it feel in your body having said that? I know that my body's having a big reaction now. I wonder how your body is feeling telling me what you just told me. And I try and really be with them in a way that they feel seen and met with respect. And kindness. And my intention always is to bring a person to a place where they can have respect and kindness for themselves as they meet what they're meeting inside them. Yeah. Yeah. Being that witness for them, holding them. Yeah. 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 And, and what's your you're experiencing then just just in terms of relating to people how this all un, unfolded for you like did did it what was your journey through your own healing did you find yourself uh highly disrupted by this was it something you just kind of integrated into your flow of life just i, I mean curious as to get a sense of you know your your personal yeah, yeah, yeah. healing well you know i you know i know you're you're going for a corporate crowd and 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 i I don't usually publicly talk about this, but I actually had a near-death experience when I was 12. Right. And I had a full-blown life review, went into the light, really wanted to stay there because it was so much better than what was happening to me at the time. And uh, I was told, no, actually, you have a lot of work to do. You have to go back and be in this world. And I came back with a very strong sense of purpose. And I felt that my purpose was to bring healing, to be a person of light in the world. That alone did not heal my trauma. I still had to deal with my own trauma and face my trauma. And if I hadn't done that piece of really looking at what hurt, um, I, I don't think that I could help other people look and meet what hurts inside them. Um, you know, I I think especially uh, this 
this Western culture that we live in, you have to look a certain way all the time. You have to look yeah. put together. You have to be polished. Even if you're feeling crappy on the inside, you have to be sunny on the outside. And, and that's what people want. And that's what flows. And there can be a tremendous amount of shame in carrying tremendous pain. Yeah. Um, so, and when I first left home, even though I went off to college very early, I went off to college when I was 16. Um, I was such a soft-spoken person that people would have to lean in to hear me because I was so soft-spoken. And I was afraid to have a voice. So my process of finding a voice was a very big part of my healing. Uh, and therapy helped a little bit with that. But actually, putting myself in the world, I started going to poetry readings. And I was so inspired by the courageous people who were getting up and speaking profound truths about themselves. And so I, I emulated them and began writing and learning to speak out, you know, sweaty hands holding a piece of paper and trembling voice, the whole bit. I was a mess, but I did it. Right. Um, and I think that was a very important part of having a body and a voice. I did a lot of theater work as in my youth. I think that helped too. Um, and finding words for yourself experience, Bessel talks a lot about how that's a very important part of healing, really knowing what you know, because yeah. you know it in one way and then completely suppress it in another. So integrating what you know with what you might not even want people to know still, but to be able to own it inside yourself, whether you choose to show it to others or not, to have cultivate a respect for your own worth. That's such a growing edge. That's yeah. such a healing place to be where you feel like you're not hiding on the inside from yourself. Um, right. So I, I did do a lot of that. Yeah. And it sounds like that was as important, if not more important than the, than the therapy. It was your exploration in the arts. Is that, is I, that right? I would say it was both. I would say that therapy gave me the opportunity to tell the stories that I'd never told anyone. Right. But being in my body with my voice and knowing these stories inside me, not outside to somebody else, but to me, being able to hold that and recognize who I was of value back then, mm. who I was that was vulnerable back then, that's a, an intimacy with self that I, I don't know that therapy can take you all the way there. Mm. It's a process, and therapy certainly helps. But if I hadn't been writing, if I hadn't been meditating, I, I think meditation is really the place where you go inside and you meet yourself, meet yourself beyond the stories that you tell, find where am I right now? What's coming up right now? 
Is it this story or is it something else? Is it this feeling of sadness right here in my throat that is unfamiliar to me or very familiar that I just haven't been paying attention to? What happens if I pay attention to that? And the therapy is is good support to process. Well, I guess I've been feeling sad these days and have somebody say, uh-huh, what's that like? So yeah. it, it's both. Yeah. The therapy doesn't stop, the healing doesn't stop when you leave the office. It, yeah. that's just, it's constant. That's right. I, in fact, I had to one, leave one therapist because we, I was saying, well, I'm, I don't really have much to share with you this week, right? I've been um, processing a lot in my own way with my journaling and my other pro. And uh, he's like, well, I think you should save it all up for the therapy session. <laughs> I'm not no. going to put my healing on hold to, to, to fit with my therapy schedule. No, but, but then the, the question would be, wow, how does that feel to not have so much to share now? Right. Does it do you feel lighter? You know, what's going on? And, and yeah. quite often, therapists think they have to have all the answers. Mm. And I, I'm not a therapist per se. I see myself really as a companion. Yeah. I'm there as somebody is figuring it out. I'm going to help you figure it out too. I'm going to walk with you. I'm by your side. But I'm, I'm the expert. Yeah. 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 That, that makes so much sense. I, I'm curious then about you. So you had this near-death experience when you are 12. You go yeah. into the, to the light. Yeah. And, given and, and, given on, a mission. Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, no, go on, go on, go on. I was, so I was curious, and you said you came back with a purpose. So I sort of had two questions about that. Firstly, what was the purpose? And secondly, did you then maintain a, a strong connection with you know, whatever you relate to in, in terms of the light? Yeah, um, I know this interview suddenly turned into something you didn't expect. I'm loving it, though. So if you, know, you meet somebody who's had a near-death experience at 12 and, and had yeah, a conversation so with a higher power. Yeah, there's so many of them out there. Uh, well, the thing is that my I, so I was sort of given this vision of what I was supposed to do, and it was right. this impossibly beautiful, grand thing. I was shown the planet Earth wrapped with lines of light, thick, beautiful lines of light, like a ball of yarn covered in light. And I was told that that was me connecting light around the world. And, you know, I was, I was a little kid and yeah. I had no idea how to get from what I saw in that vision and uh, you know that's the shorthand version of what i saw in that vision to how is this little 12 year old kid living in an unhappy house supposed to grow up and do that because i saw nothing out there like that and I, and i had many interests that I thought to follow, to pursue, to become who I was supposed to be, that that person that I saw. But I, I found that I was really teased and ostracized if I tried to talk about it. So I couldn't talk about it and I had to just kind of suppress it. 
and pretend it didn't happen, which is a challenging thing when you have this mission. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I've since been in support groups for people who've had near-death experiences. And there's been a lot of research done, and they say that with adults who have a near-death experience, there's a very distinct before and after. And it takes about seven years to sort of integrate and allow the NDE to be a, a part of who you are as a whole. With children, it takes a lot longer, about 15 years. And um, in my case, uh, I was about, you know, I'd gone to school, uh, gone off and worked and done things and been a little hippie kid in the, I guess it was those late 70s and then into the 80s and had a couple kids myself and saw a little ad in a newspaper that said there was going to be a meeting for people who'd had near-death experiences. And um, I made a beeline. I drove across the state to find this meeting and find these people. I, this had been sort of a dormant part of myself for a very long time. And reconnected with them. And it opened up, oh, right, I have this purpose. Oh, I have to do this thing. And when I was about 27 was when I did that and connected with them and thought, okay, I've, I've got to become a body worker. I've got some healing energy in me. That's something I should cultivate no matter what, because I don't know what else it is that I'm supposed to do. Right. And, um, and it, it was like an urgent thing to go, okay, I have to do something now. Now that I'm really owning this, at the same time that I had gone to this meeting and sort of begun tentatively to reclaim this identity, this hidden identity of being a near-death experiencer, I had also started to have flashbacks of the violence of my childhood. Right. Um, things that I didn't remember where I would just suddenly in the middle of the day, like just be overwhelmed by a memory and just burst into tears because, you know, they were horrible, horrible mm. memory. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and I still didn't talk very much about my NDE, but in my work as a body worker, I helped many people to deal with really, really traumatic things in their lives. Yeah. It, helped a number of people to transition through terminal illnesses, um, divorces, violence, uh, broken bones, you name it. You see all kinds of things and all different kinds of traumas. And what I found most helpful with all the people that I worked with was just my presence, just being with them. not giving them advice, not figuring it out for them, just holding them, holding them with presence and awareness so that they felt safe to stay in their bodies and be aware of what was happening to themselves. 
And I had a very loyal client base when I was a hands-on body worker, I think because of that, because I, people told me things they would never tell anyone that yeah. I, I, I think they might not have known how to tell a therapist even. Right. Yeah. 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 That uh, reason. So, yeah. I don't know. Does that connect yeah, enough? That, yeah. 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 Well, so I've got two questions now. So you, you mentioned the violence. Was the near-death experience related to, was that as a result of, of experiencing violence? Well, indirectly, I had tried to commit suicide a number of times as a 12-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old. And, um, and I was a very spiritual person. At, and at one point, I just decided I was so angry at God. And nothing else had worked. And I lay on my bed with my fists clenched in the middle of winter with the windows open and I could see my breath in the room. It was night. And I just demanded to be taken back. And I think I had the openness of a child. I just knew that God had made a terrible mistake. And this was not the life I was supposed to be living. And I demanded to be taken back. And my body was enveloped in warmth. And suddenly I was rising through a tunnel of colors, seeing vignettes of my life, my short little life passing by me. And then I rose into the light. Mm. So. Yeah. Wow. Um, uh, yeah. Oh. No, no, go on. And then so I'm curious, because this is, I mean, what an extraordinary experience. And, and you know, obviously, coming out of a, a, a tragic circumstance and did you maintain a channel did that then did you sort of create a dialogue then with this the light as you describe it or or was it a sort of one-off that's what it's I'm curious interesting about. i i think i really grieved for quite some time and i i would climb out my window at night when everyone was asleep and I would go walk under the stars and talk to the stars, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like I was getting information all the time. It was like, right. I'm in my life. I was given a map. I better follow it the best I can. And, but, and it has been a good measure for me. Like I, I remember feeling like I had more of a voice and going, Oh, that's part of who I'm supposed to be. That was part of the vision. Oh, I got that part. Or, oh, I've got this energy in my hands. I've got that part. You know, but I saw myself speaking in front of people. That was part of the vision. I saw myself traveling around the world. I had no idea how that was going to happen. I didn't meet Dr. Vanderkolk until I was 52 years old. I waited a very long time for this part of that vision to manifest. And now I do understand that I'm fully that person that I saw. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's such an extraordinary, you know, an extraordinary story. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I know it's extraordinary, but I also, you know, I fervently believe that everybody has that in them. Everybody has that source. Everybody has that light. 
And it's, it's not a religious thing. It's just that's who we are. That's, that's yeah. our essence. And being able to tune into that essence that carries our love, it carries our worth, it carries our best intentions, it carries our ability to heal ourselves. Having that relationship with self is, is for me, the most important thing to reconnect people with themselves. And amazingly, our body is a very important part of that. We yeah. embody what we carry inside ourselves. And the light that we have inside us is covered by the pain. Because it's the most precious part of ourselves that we want to keep alive. The thing is that we forget that it's there when there's so much pain that we're always seeing. We don't see the light. So dealing with the pain gives us our connection to our light. Yeah. That's yeah. absolutely yeah, that makes complete sense to me. And there's no um there's no way around that, right? It's not like there are any shortcuts to the light. We, 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 must, address, <laughs> we must address the pain, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it, you know, I, I, I've begun working in the psychedelic world. Mm. Uh, I, I do trainings for the Ketamine Training Center in the U.S., and my role within the trainings is to help people become more aware of their bodies. And before they take anything. So ketamine is a legal medicine and it's used in many ways in the U.S., but it does have hallucinogenic properties and can induce mystical state sometimes in people. It's used for depression. It's used for pain. It's used when people show up in the ER and they're hysterical. Sometimes they're given ketamine. It's used on the battlefield. So it's kind of ubiquitous in a way. Even dentists use it. And um, I've heard stories of young children being given ketamine in, in emergency rooms. But I train medical professionals and therapists who are going to provide what's known as ketamine-assisted psychotherapy sessions for people, where they are guided and assisted through a psychedelic experience with a therapist and or medical provider present to help them process their experience in real time. Um, and body awareness is a very important part of that. And uh, what I've found is that psychedelics, um, they can enhance your awareness of your physical experience. They can open you slowly and gently or fully to deep emotions that you might not have been aware that you were carrying. You might say, oh, that stuff with my mother, I took care of that a long time ago. That was in, that was, I did therapy when I was in college and I'm fine, I'm fine. And then you might go inside. I only work mostly with low doses, so you're still able to talk. You might go inside and go, oh my gosh, I loved my mother so much. She hurt me so much. I didn't realize how much pain there is still here around this. Yeah. Um, 
And you might not realize how that's affecting your interactions with the people around you. Um, so I have found that I wouldn't call it a shortcut per se. I just call it um, a really, really helpful gift. We're so lucky that we have them. And, and I don't know if you know any of the research around MDMA. but No, no, not MDMA, but I have had uh, a guy on the show who's, who left his job in corporate finance to, um, to set up uh, hallucinogenic retreats. Um, so, uh, you know, working with mushrooms. Yeah. Um, yeah. But no, tell me about M MDMA. Um, well, MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, big, mostly in the U.S. organization that, that did most of the research for MDMA. Um, their latest papers coming out about healing from PTSD, but not just PTSD, People with early childhood trauma who uh, Bessel had actually initially tried to discourage from being included in the study because he thought that the results wouldn't be so good if they were included, and yet they were included. And th those people who had early childhood trauma actually benefited the most from MDMA because they were able to access compassion for themselves as they reviewed their experiences mm. they were able to have an embodied way of meeting themselves and being able to see in a different light usually people who've survived childhood trauma especially at the hands of their caregivers there's a way that they blame themselves for what happened or they were told that they deserved what happened to them and they internalized that. And that seems to be one of the big things that, that shifts with a psychedelic experience is that they're able to really meet a kinder aspect of themselves as they meet their pain. Mm. They're closer to their essence. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. you might call it love. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Having been to MDMA-fueled raves in my youth, I mean, uh, that was always what I would, would come away with, you know, versus going to a, a British pub and everybody would be drinking and fighting. You know, you'd, you'd have this experience where everybody was, was kind and, and loving to each other in a yeah. way I, I didn't experience in, you know, everyday life. Yeah, and, and so... If instead of going to a rave and being outward with that love, mm. you turn inward and you meet the most pained parts of yourselves and you give them your love, it's profound. It's really profound. Mm. Mm. And, and finding a way for those hurt parts to have an authentic voice and, and yeah. speak truth without the fear of reprisal. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's it it's fantastic that we have all of these experiences now. You know, across the globe with different different drugs, and as you say, not not necessarily to provide shortcuts, but can there be aids aids to our it healing? Definitely lift you up. You know, and and I've heard people say, "Oh, 
this drug is the 30-minute near-death experience. And my thought to that is, you know, I'm sure that my near-death experience didn't take that long. Maybe a few Mm -hmm. minutes lapsed here. Maybe. And yet it was profound enough to be a map for my life that I didn't throw it away. I didn't say, oh, could I get another one tomorrow and and go to a rave and, and take some more and have another near-death experience? That wasn't, wasn't like that at all. It was like, this is guiding me. Yeah. This is guiding me to who I'm supposed to be. And, and I think that there's a way that psychedelic experiences can be a way for us to know where we're supposed to go with ourselves. You know, we're really meeting, who do I, who am I in this world? Who do I want to be in this world? And it's, it's really about being, not about doing. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, yeah, that's, pro- that's profound. And I think any, anything out there that can help with that yeah. is certainly worth exploring. And is that a big part of what the trauma research center is, so, sorry, trauma research foundation is engaged with is, is these types of experiments? Um, you know, we partnered with maps, but there are also, there's research around neurofeedback being done that we're funding, and we're funding a touch study that's happening at Western University in Canada. Um, you know, there's so much we don't know about our bodies and our consciousness and what that interface is between consciousness, awareness, ourselves, but also how do how do our bodies really affect how we interact with each other? I mean, we are, we are evolved to be social creatures, to interact, to collaborate and cooperate. And, and that's a very important part of our experience as humans. And so many people right now are isolated. You know, the pandemic didn't help much, but this digital age where you can just fall into the rabbit hole of your phone at any moment. You don't yeah. ever have any free time. You don't have ever have to pay attention to yourself. There's always something that you can do to distract yourself from you. Yeah. But there's a way that you're not really fully alive if that's what you're doing. If you're not able to greet somebody openly and fully and know them and have them know you, to smile and be in your body and feel yourself and sense the other person that you're with and do something together, cook a meal or go for a walk or dance at a rave or build a rocket ship, whatever it is that you're doing, there, there's, you know, if, if, if you do the grind and you kind of slide through life and uh, on one level, it's called dealing and not feeling. Right. I love that dealing and not feeling. Yeah. That's where I was for the first three decades of my life. Yeah. 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 You know, I've got to just survive, got to make enough to pay the rent and put some food yeah. on the table and survive. Mm. And you, you have a, a shell on that's like your acceptable smiley shell that everybody wants to see, but it's not the same thing as what you're feeling inside. Yeah. Life gets really, really hard. Of course you want to take a drink or 
do something else, you know, or of course you want to just jump into your phone at any given time and play the the games and, you know, not, not feel. Yeah. Can be very lonely. Even when you're with a partner, that can be very, very lonely. Yeah. 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 And uh, it can feel so daunting. I remember having a conversation with once about therapy and asking her if she considered doing therapy. And she 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 said she was fearful that it would be like a Chinese doll, right? I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd open up one and there would be another one and it would be an infinite Chinese doll of like feelings to deal with. And in a way, she was right. <laughs> like That is yeah. my experience. But also yeah. the richness of life that emerges once yeah. we... Yeah. Once we start engaging in our body and our feelings. Yeah, you think it's endless pain, but what happens is when you resolve some of that pain, you have more access to the fullness of your being. You you can be energized and alive in a different way and much more creative. Much and more joyful, f- right? At, yeah, yeah, joyful. Yeah. Joyful. That's one of the gifts is we get yeah. to experience, feel everything more, including joy. Unhappiness, right, right, all of it, yeah, and and then it's not so scary to have any of your feelings, mm. you know. Yeah, yeah, I, that, that that makes sense. Um, the other thing I was curious about was because you and you mentioned sound and, and using the voice. Um, yeah. I, on the show, we had somebody called Eileen McCusack, and she's done a lot of research with uh, music. Sorry, with um specifically sound and tuning forks mm, and playing mm. different revenue, you know, different, different um, notes uh, to help people attune and, and release, uh, release trauma. Uh, are you, are you doing any research into to sound? I, I work a lot with sound and I actually do work with tuning forks for people who have something called alexithymia, which is quite a few people in our culture. Um, that's what where, is that? Sorry, what's alexithymia? Alexithymia is where you don't understand the emotional response you're having to something. You might be really, really angry and feel a lot of tension in your body, and your voice might be really tight, but you might not be aware at all of what you're expressing or feeling or presenting to the people around you. Um, you're out of touch with yourself. That's alexithymia. Okay. And and so I I'll take a tuning fork and just activate the end and then place the base on the person's palm of their hand and have them can you feel the vibration in the palm of your hand from the tuning fork? Where do you feel it? Can you feel it in your bones? Can you feel it in your skin? Can you hear the sound? What can you notice about your body in relation to this tuning fork right now? And then I'll have them cup their hands like this and strike the tuning fork again and put it in the hand and see, can you feel the vibration of the tuning fork going through the top hand into the bottom hand? And you can. That's the first thing, first first awareness of, oh, my body is doing something here that I didn't know was possible. And we strike the tuning fork again. and. Place it at the sternum. How far inside can you feel those vibrations? What's happening now? What comes up? What thoughts come up? So, you know, 
scientific research, there's so much for science to look at everywhere. Yeah. The touch study that we're doing, um, that we're funding, is a really, really important one. Um, and yet it's such a simple one. I, I think even the simple meditation exercises that I do with people are somehow too complex for, for scientists to look at in a scanner and say, what's happening here? What's happening here? So, so the physiological research that's very expensive to do, uh, there's not a lot of it happening. Um, I don't know about social science research. I, for some of us, for many of us who are innovative in how we work with people, uh, the most important thing is to document what we do mm. until people are ready to look at it. Document yeah. and say, here are the case studies. This is what I've been doing. This is what I've been finding. And, and it, Bessel's a, a big believer in videotaping so that people can actually see what happens. And he shows a lot of videos in his lectures. Um, and some people that I work with are very generous and say, yes, I want to share because this is helping me. But some people have been so brutally hurt that I would not feel comfortable asking them. Yeah. Tell me about the touch study. What's, what, how does that work? Um, see, they're very innovative people and they have this giant fMRI machine and they have these EEG caps that are so sophisticated that they filter out body movement and you can actually move when you're wearing them and not get all the noise of the movement. It can actually read your brain waves. And, um, so they're, they're doing studies of what's it like to have a person come and touch your arm. What happens in your brain? What happens in what, what's responding or firing in your brain? If you've been hurt by touch or if you've been helped by touch and what's a comforting touch. And, um, you know, I, I know they've done studies like, like if you're, partner who you feel safe with is nearby how long can you hold your hand in a bucket of ice water versus if you're <laughs> i mean th those are the kinds of things that they do they're such weird little things yeah you know, what, is that, what does that have to do with touch what does that have to do with presence what's really going on in the brain and and you know different scientists have different questions that they're they're asking I think the way the touch study is set up is that they're touching people without they're 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 finding people who've had experiences with trauma who get touched and people who haven't had experiences with trauma supposedly you know how do you really filter that out because yeah uh, um and and then just saying what happened to the brain how do the brains of people who've had trauma look when they're touched versus not touched and was it sexual trauma or another kind of trauma what is the, what are the variables here and if this is happening in the brain um what happens to your heart rate or uh, so at the trauma conference we, we've been funding this study for over a year now they're actually going to 
share some of the results of that study at the trauma conference and, and explain what they're finding. They do studies about balance and touch, what happens to your vestibular system, um, I, what comes online. If, if you're touched, are you able to think about different things? Um, those, are, those are kinds of some of the questions that, that they might be looking at. Fascinating, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, I think I think it makes a lot of sense to to do research in that area. And I'm, I was speaking personally in terms of my own experience of recovering from trauma and when it's when it's been okay to receive touch and when it's not. And yeah, right, yeah. right. From phases I went through, I went from being very shut down and not doing any work in terms of myself and being fine with touch and then i started working myself and suddenly i became very very sensitive to touch and now i'm okay with touch again yeah just means something very different than it used to mean Mm. Uh, maybe when you started out touch was just another thing to block out exactly perfect yeah yeah Yeah. um yeah so I, i i think it's great that people are looking at that yeah awesome so have I answered enough of your questions? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think so. <laughs> wow. Been, uh, yeah, it's been a fantastic conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciated your candor yeah, and your insight. Well, um, you know, I, th- I was feeling like I wasn't going to be completely honest if I didn't tell you that. <laughs> No, I, I uh, really appreciate that. Uh, wow. Yes. Uh, yeah, I feel really moved by the story and, yeah, and, and, um, and just uh, grateful to have had, to, yeah, to have, to have been here to, to listen to your wisdom on these topics. It's- Thank you so much. I, I hope this is helpful. I, I know you, you have sort of a corporate bent. Exactly. But, um, well, yeah, but this is... Uh, yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, relevant. Well, to all human beings, including yeah. those who work in the corporate space. Well, you know, yeah. if you're working with a lot of people and you're trying your best to fit in, do you get to still at the same time feel like you get to be who you really are? Exactly. Yeah. And I th- and I think for people working in a corporate space, you know, that dealing and not feeling, yeah. there's there's perhaps more. You're enabled to behave in that way, and there's pressure for you to, be, you know, to to behave in that way, and you're somewhat rewarded, right? Because if I take <laughs> half a day out, or a week, or a year to to work on myself, right, I, I, that's not going to be conducive to my, you know, career progression. Um, so I think for people to hear this and to understand the value of it, um, and uh, is really important. I, I think that. When you're more in your body, you have a capacity to see solutions that aren't mainstream. You can find authentic ideas. You can be more creative. You you have the ability to see opportunities differently and interact with them differently. I think that's all absolutely true. And I think the other important element for me is one's ability to navigate relationships. Yeah. Because yeah. If I'm getting triggered and and, and uh, rubbing up the wrong way, you know, with with different individuals in my sphere, you can pretty much guarantee that's going to 
going to go back to something in your past. Oh, so yeah. doing this kind of work makes you know, one's ability to navigate you know, social situations. Uh, yeah. It enhances it, makes it great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Alicia. Yes, it's been it's been brilliant. Uh, really appreciated it. Um, and for people, we'll, we'll put links to the Trauma Research Foundation. Uh, great. great. And I know you've got a YouTube channel. I was I was um, exercising with some of your your, your grounding oh, techniques, yeah. you know, <laughs> along along with you before this interview. So I really appreciate those, and we'll put a link to those. Wonderful, uh, wonderful. Yeah, we yeah. have a lot of resources. And um, this year is going to be the 35th year of the trauma conference. And um, it's the 10th anniversary of the body keeps the score being published. And um, I, th I think this is the year that we're going to kick off an endowment campaign for research. So come to our website yeah. and see what we're about. Yeah, fantastic. Well, uh, Thank we'll send that link for sure. All right. Thanks once again. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.